0: Uh, and that's, that's a good sign. So thank you. Uh, we are going to continue in Romans chapter 7, so I would invite you to turn there. Now, we started the chapter during the Sunday school hour, and um, I'm just going to review for a, a little bit because uh, what we're going to continue with is a, is a complete thought in itself, but it's good to see where we come from whenever we come to a section of scripture, and we will be beginning in verse 15 for this message. I'll back up a verse or two to uh, get the context, but um, I want to begin by saying the Lord must get tired of our excuses. We can find excuses for doing certain things or not doing certain things. We can find excuses to uh, not come to church. Uh, sometimes it's because the pastor is too deep or he's too shallow. I actually had uh, two people actually say both, two different people say both of those things about the same message one time. <laughs> it was too deep. It was too shallow. Well, maybe that says something about my preaching, but maybe it says something about their growth and walk with the Lord too. So Uh, we can always find an excuse for for those things or not to witness to people. I had someone literally begging me to witness to them yesterday. You ever had that happen where you come across someone It's like this guy is just asking me to witness to him? And so I did. And uh, I I sent him on his way with a couple of books too. Uh, I was out visiting the uh, boyhood home of abraham lincoln You ever been out there it's just a beautiful spot out there in, in uh, indiana and just had a nice talk with this fellow uh, pray for roger Parrott that he would trust the lord he uh, he's very sensitive to the lord so um, but sometimes we use those excuses um, these excuses surely grieve the holy spirit But I think that the kind of excuse that grieves the Holy Spirit the most is when we use the Word of God as an excuse to sin. And you say, who would ever do that? Well, like I said downstairs, you don't have to raise your hand. This isn't confession this morning, all right? But have you ever thought these words? And look at verse 15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that I do. If the Apostle Paul wrote that, well, surely the Lord will let me off the hook for not always being consistent in my Christian life. Have you ever thought that way? And I think sometimes we do. We justify our walk or lack of a walk with the Lord because we look at verses like this. And we think, well, man, here's the Apostle Paul. He's writing by inspiration. He's having this struggle in his life. Oh, surely I could never live a consistent Christian life. Well, I want to pop that bubble because I'm going to give you a different view of Romans chapter 7 than you might have heard before. And so I'm going to have to ask you to be Bereans, okay? Search the scripture, receive the word with all readiness of mind, like those Bereans did in Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. But then search the scriptures daily, whether these things be so. I'm going to present the view that what Paul is describing in verses, actually quite a bit of the section, but we'll start in verse 14 uh, down through uh, verse 24 that he's actually describing the struggle he had as a religious Pharisee under the law. And we will give you reasons for why we hold that position and then uh, see if that doesn't fit that life. So to introduce, we'll pick up where we left off in Sunday school. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now it is true that a Christian can be described as carnal. Paul certainly did that with the Corinthians, didn't he? He said, I have to speak unto you as carnal, as babes in Christ and not as unto spiritual. Well, he wasn't saying that they weren't saved. In fact, it was because they were saved that he's a little bit, well, firm with them in that passage. And so, yes, a Christian can be described as carnal. But so can a non-believer. In fact, a non-believer is always carnal in this respect. Carnal just means fleshly. And if you are an unbeliever, you are always in the flesh. Now, you might try to do spiritual-sounding things. You might try to live the way you should, actually, as we're going to see described in our text. But you're still carnal if you're an unbeliever. But that's not the word I'm really centering in on because... Paul says one more thing, the final phrase of verse 14 that I think identifies who he's really describing here. He says, I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, if you know much about redemption, you know that a true believer could never say, I am sold under sin. That, those are not the words of a believer. In fact, I use the word redemption on purpose. The word redemption in the Greek is ex The agora was the marketplace. At the marketplace, yes, they sold, uh, you know, fruit and vegetables and so forth, but they also sold human beings as slaves. And that's what the Apostle Paul has in mind in other places when he writes about being redeemed. We are ex Agarazzo, which means we are extracted as believers. Once we put our trust in Christ by believing the gospel, we are removed from the marketplace of sin, never to be sold again. Are you glad for that truth? I certainly pray that you are, because that means our salvation is secure in Christ. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're not for sale once we have been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. We've put our faith in him. So, my point is, whoever Paul's describing here, and he's using first person, he's using himself as an example, he's talking about a person who's not saved. Now, you might ask, well, how could he say in verse 15, for that which I allow, he's talking in present tense, he's using first person. Well, if you know anything about literature, you also know that there is what we sometimes think of as um, a way of intensifying the meaning of something and calling special attention to it. The Apostle Paul is using himself, first person now, to really draw us into his life and describe what it was like to be religious, and Paul was religious, I should say Saul at that time. He was religious enough, and you'll read about that over in Philippians, where he says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee. I mean, he had all the religious credentials, and more than you or I would ever hope to get. He was plenty religious, but he was lost. He was unsaved. He was sold under sin. So that's who he's describing. He puts it in first person present to sort of dramatize now what he was going through. He does a similar thing actually in 1 Timothy where he says he's the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. Well, he certainly wasn't the chief of sinners when he wrote 1 Timothy. But again, he's going back in his life and he's putting it in the present to dramatize it. So with that in mind, look at verse 15 again. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Now, in case you're wondering, why would an unbeliever even have the awareness of what's right and wrong or a desire to do the right thing? And again, I've come across some interesting quotes. I want to read a couple of them for you. And these come from the philosophers that actually predate or are contemporary with Paul. Here's a quote from Seneca, a Roman philosopher from 65, uh, A.D. 65. He says, quote, What is it that draws us in one direction while striving to go in another? What, and impels us toward that which we wish to avoid. That's not Paul saying that. That's Seneca. Certainly not known to be a believer. Or how about Ovid, a Roman poet who wrote between AD, or BC, uh, uh, 43 B.C. and A.D. 17. Ovid wrote, My reason this, my passion that insists. I see the right and I approve it too condemn the wrong and yet the wrong pursue and it sound a lot like what we just read in verse 15 that which i do i allow not for what i would that do i not but what i hate that do i now i warned the folks in sunday school you don't have to raise your hand you don't have to acknowledge you're thinking that way or you ever have but just let me ask you even before you were saved Did you have that struggle of really wanting to do the right thing, but not being able to figure out how to do it? Anybody have that? Yeah, I think a lot of people identify with that, even though they're unsaved. So yes, there is that struggle, even among unbelievers. Well, the apostle is going to go on now and elaborate. Verse 16, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law, That it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And at this point, we are going to see Paul looking back at his life and expressing the feelings that he had, even as a religious. Pharisee and what we'll find if you're following the outline here verses 18 through 20 are going to be an explanation of verse 17 so let's just look at verse 17 again and then we're going to see how Paul elaborates on that in the next few verses verse 17 now then it is no more I that do it but sin that dwelleth in me For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Now we're going to show you a scripture a bit later that really contradicts that once you become a believer. Because guess what? If you're a believer who's in the word at all, you do know how to perform that which is good. You do know. But again, as he's presenting this here, it's from the view of a person who just doesn't know how to perform that which is good. And again, he repeats the idea that he did in verse 17. Verse 19 says, For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not That I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now, I want to illustrate this and also verse 23, where he says, I see another law in my members. Now, if you were here in Sunday school, or even if you weren't, What's Paul talking about here when he says, "His members. What members? Eyes, Eyes ears, hands, feet. It's talking about the members of our bodies. So what he's saying here as a religious Pharisee under the law, he says, "I see a law working in my members." What's he talking about? Well, the Pharisees had this thing that allowed them to excuse their behavior by blaming it on their members. And do you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ, during the time of the period of the four Gospels, before the dispensation of grace, the Lord was ministering to the circumcision, to the Jews. I am sent not but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he said. And when he ministered to them, he often got into confrontations with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the most religious of all the different sects in Israel. And the Pharisees had this view, if it's my hand making me sin, that's not my fault. And I think you can see where we're going with this. What did the Lord Jesus say to those guys? Hey, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You know, that has bothered people, hasn't it? Or if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it's better to go into eternity without a member than to go to hellfire because of that member. That's a little paraphrase there. So, why has that troubled people? Well, that's pretty obvious. Did did the Lord Jesus, was he actually telling these people to cut off their hand? No, he's answering absurdity with absurdity it's absurd to say my sin problem is in my hand that's absurd that's not where your sin problem is by the way in fact the Lord went on to teach out of the heart proceed murders and adulteries and all of those lists of sins that are often found in scripture You see, our problem isn't in our hand. Oh, our hand might be the thing that steals. Our eye might be the member that leads us to lust or facilitates it. Or our feet might be the members that carry us to places we probably shouldn't be. It's like the guy that went to the doctor and says, Doc, I broke my leg in three places. And the doctor said, Why don't you stay out of those places? (laughs) Well, sometimes we do go where we shouldn't go. But you see, it's not the member's fault, is it? It's what's in the heart. And so the Lord was simply answering absurdity with absurdity. And we see Paul, as he's describing this struggle in our text, using the same argument. Verse 20. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it. It's not my fault. But sin that dwelleth in me, I see a law, then a law, that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And um, I started to experienced fear and trembling when you started singing redeemed brother because i knew that verse was coming the king in whose law i delight (laughs) now oh boy what are they going to do with that in whose grace i delight amen thank you for changing that by the way now it's not that we don't delight in the whole word of god but where is our delight as believers today what portion of scripture cheers your heart like no other. How about the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery? Does that bring delight to your heart? But you see, Paul is describing the religious Jew under the law here in our text. And that's the struggle that the religious Pharisee felt. He delighted in the law of God. In fact, again, the Lord Jesus made references to how much they loved the Word. Over in John chapter eight, I believe it is, or or five, I have to look it up, Um, the Lord talked to these very people, these Pharisees, and he said that uh, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They they thought that because they knew the scriptures so well, that would save them. And then he said, but you won't come to me that you might have life. Because they are they, the scriptures are they, that speak of me. And, you know, there's an application for us, even though Christ spoke that to the Pharisees under the law. We don't get to heaven because we have a great knowledge of scripture. That's not what gets us to heaven. It's because of the one the scriptures reveal. Why do we study the scriptures? So that we know God better. So that we understand salvation better. So we love the Lord Jesus Christ better because that's what the scripture is about. It's about him. So again, here's this religious Jew under the law portrayed by Paul himself. I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law where it's in those members. Those members, they're the ones getting me in trouble all the time. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Okay, that might be the view of a religious Jew under the law, but that's not where the sin resides. And we have to be really careful here. There are entire cults that have come up with this idea that sin is simply residing in our physical flesh. And I, and I, I try not to, you know, pick on, on true believers. But Have you ever heard of Christian science? You ever heard of that? As some have said, Christian science is like grape nuts. You know, grape nuts aren't grapes and they're not nuts. And Christian science isn't Christian and it's not scientific. But what it teaches is that if you're really spiritual, you will deny the physical. They teach that Jesus Christ didn't rise bodily from the dead, that he rose only spiritually. And oftentimes, and I know this stuff because when I was in Bible Institute, our assignment was to go around to the different cults and find out what they believe. And there was a Christian Science reading room in our town in Montana where I went to Bible Institute. And I noticed, and this, again, nothing personal, the person had a, a really crooked nose. And the reason they had a crooked nose is because they believe you can't go to the doctor because that's admitting that you're physical, and that means that you're sinful. And so if your nose is broken, you leave it crooked. If your finger's broken, you'd leave it bent all whatever direction because to get it fixed is giving in to the notion that you're physical. People believe this stuff. And, that, and that's what you see going on here to a degree. I see, and, and look at the war that's going on in verse 23. This is so crucial. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. As a religious Pharisee under the law, Paul is trying to do the right thing up here with his mind. It's mind over members. Doesn't that describe most religion? I'm just going to think my way into spiritual spirituality. I'm going to put my mind to it to overpower the struggle of my members and I am going to live the straight and narrow. And you know, it's not just False religions that teach those things. You know what we call that in Christian circles? Legalism. Legalism. Mind over members. That's the struggle. And he's being very honest here. Who's winning this war in Paul's description of his religious struggle? The members are winning. The members are winning. And so he cries out in verse 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And he's using an expression here that's very unpleasant, even disgusting. He's making a reference to a particular type of execution the Romans had come up with. And by the way, the Romans were masters of execution and making it as painful as possible. They came up with crucifixion, after all. But another method of execution the Romans sometimes practiced was, if you were condemned, a condemned criminal, condemned to die, they would take a person who had already been executed or who had already died, and they would chain you or bind you to the corpse and just let you lay there until you succumbed as well. Wow, what a way to go, huh? And he's using that as an illustration of the struggle that he's facing as a religious Jew under the law trying to do the right thing but finding himself chained to this body. It's this body that's my problem. Oh, how wretched a man I am. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? Now, of course, the right answer, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I think what's happening here, the Apostle Paul as he describes this struggle that he's trying to portray for those who are unsaved yet trying to do the right thing he's afraid we're going to we're going to become despair it's just going to to overwhelm us and he says oh i thank god through jesus christ our lord okay he doesn't want us to forget where the answer is but then he summarizes this whole struggle at the end of verse 25 so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Okay, this is the struggle that even a lot of Christians find themselves in. Now, I said earlier and uh, downstairs at Sunday school, there's one of two reasons you have this feeling that is so forcefully stated in verse 15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. Either you're not saved, or you're trying to live the Christian life by the law. Because that doesn't work either. If you're a true believer, and you're thinking that just keeping the law, keeping a set of rules, is going to somehow help you overcome sin... I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to be sadly disappointed. And, of course, that's what Romans 8 is all about, of life in the spirit. But what I want to do now, so that we don't leave ourselves in the despair that Paul has so vividly described here, let's go over to Galatians 5, where we also see a struggle, but it's a different struggle. And I want to throw out a few terms here. Um, a lot of times we use terminology that's not in the Bible or we perhaps misinterpret terms that are in the Bible. Many Bible teachers, many scholars look at Paul's words in Romans 7 and they say, well, that's, that's simply the old nature struggling with the new nature. Anybody ever heard that? Now you can raise your hand. Anybody ever heard that terminology? That's pretty much the standard view in Christendom uh, is that as a believer we have two natures we have the old nature the old sin nature whatever we have the new nature and those are what control us at any given moment and there's really nothing we can do about it okay now i've i've uh, for many years i've stopped using the term old nature and new nature first of all for this reason they're not in the bible Okay, now if they were in the Bible, we can look up the words, see what they mean, and we can identify and and assign a meaning to what that is, but they're not in the Bible, and so when they're not in the Bible, then what we do is we theologically, you know, make them mean whatever we want them to mean, okay? Well, that's not a very good way to study the Bible. Now, another thing that people will do is they will say the old nature is the same as the old man in Scripture, And the new nature is the new man. Okay. Well, at least we got some biblical terminology now to work with. Um, I disagree with that assessment. What most theologians say is the old nature and the new nature, I believe, is closer to what we would call the flesh and the spirit. But they're different things. The old man is who we were in Adam. And you know what happened to that guy when you got saved? He's gone. You don't don't have him anymore. You have the new man. That's everything you are in Christ. Now, why is this important? Well, you know, the Christian life isn't just a mental game. But the Bible speaks in literal, verbal terms that mean something. And so we need to understand who we are in Christ in order to live the Christian life appropriately. And we are a new man in Christ. We're no longer an old man. And yet we often think of ourselves as still that old man. If we keep thinking that we're that old man, guess what we're probably going to live like? Probably pretty much like that old man did. (laughs) Um, If we think and believe more importantly, that we are a new man that's going to change our outlook on the Christian life. Let's go to uh, Galatians 5, and I want to show you an interesting struggle that's different than the one we saw in Romans 7. Now remember, in Romans 7, what was the conclusion? Well, I see this law working in my members, and with my mind I serve the law of God, but in my flesh I serve sin. Okay, so does that sound like the victorious Christian life to you? But it sure doesn't to me. Now, does this sound any different? Galatians 5, 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That sound like a victorious life? Ah, That's a lot different, isn't it? Now, same guy writing it, but now he's writing it from a different perspective. No longer is he describing the religious Pharisee under the law. He's describing the believer in Christ. Now, there's still a struggle. But it's not the same struggle that we saw in Romans 7. Remember what the struggle was in chapter 7. The law of the mind. It's mind against what? Members. Mind against members. Now, there's a different struggle. Verse 17, for the flesh lusteth, and that word literally means wars or fights, the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now, who's fighting here? It's not mind against members anymore. It's flesh against the Spirit. Well, you say, what's the difference? you still got something going on internally that's causing you a conflict. Well, look at the wording very carefully, and I believe the translators got this right in verse 17. Notice the word Spirit. Is that capital or lowercase? You see it? It's capitalized. Oh, there, there it is. So that's the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so now... The struggle of the Christian life isn't mind against members. It's flesh, which is still what we still have an indwelling, sinful bent in our life. Absolutely. The Bible calls that the flesh. And it uses that term not to refer to the individual members of our body, but to that principle of sin that will not be removed until the rapture or we die. So we still have that bent But that's not who we are. We're a new man in Christ, a new woman in Christ, if if you're saved. But you have that bent. That's, That's still with you. But who is that bent fighting? Is it fighting against you? No, it's fighting against the Holy Spirit. You know what I believe is the biggest problem in our walk with the Lord It's when we try to battle the flesh with our mind. And what happens again back in Romans 7 when the mind gets in the battle with the members? It loses. Who's going to win this battle if we get out of the way? Is the flesh going to win or is the Holy Spirit going to win? Hey, this is no contest (laughs) The Holy Spirit's going to win. But let's be honest. Again, you don't have to raise your hand. You can if you want to. Oh, yeah, that's me. I'm a bad dude. I'm not walking with the Lord today. Hey, you can admit that if you want, but you don't have to. But what I'm saying is, when the flesh rears its ugly head, and it surely does, instead of saying, that's all right, Lord, I can handle this one. Just say, Lord, I am impotent. You take this one and let the Holy Spirit do his work. He will win every time. Verse 18. And it's just amazing how all of this works together. We talked about this earlier today in Romans 6 and 7 about the law and the fact that we're not under it. Look at it in verse 18. But if ye be led of the Spirit... Ye are not under the law. And again, these are keys to the Christian life. We don't live the Christian life by keeping a set of rules. We allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. And by the way, I'm not talking about some mysterious whisper in your ear. This book was authored by the Holy Spirit. The scripture is clear on that point. It's being led by. By the word of God, and particularly for us, the word of God rightly divided. That's how the Holy Spirit leads us today. And the Holy Spirit always wins. And if you're led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, if you're led of the Spirit, you might end up behaving in a way that the same person does who is simply being legalistic. Okay? But you're not doing it out of legalism. There's really only two definitions of legalism, and I think a lot of Christians are confused about this. Legalism is simply this either trying to be saved or be sanctified by works. That's all it is. That's what legalism is trying to be saved or sanctified by works. That's not how these things happen. So you might be led of the Spirit and look and act the same way that this guy over here, but he's doing it or she's doing it to try and earn salvation or become holy. You might look exactly the same. What's the difference? You're doing it out of the heart because the Spirit is leading you. Verse 19. And again, I just love this about the Word of God. Um, it doesn't take anything for granted. It's like, well, what are you talking about, Paul? What kind of things are you talking about? Okay, let me tell you. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation. You got enough yet? Emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, Heresy. Okay, Paul, I get the point. (laughs) No, I'm not done. (laughs) Verse uh, 21, envyings, murderers, drunkenness, revelings. And then some of us have this mindset. Oh, well, he missed mine. He didn't name mine. And so Paul says, and such like. (laughs) He covers all the rest of it right there. (laughs) So we got no excuse, do we? And such like. So you wonder what the works of the flesh looks like? Yeah, that's what it looks like. And such like. And I tell you, as I have told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's a whole other lesson, by the way, uh, that I don't have time to go into right now. I do believe in eternal security. But he's talking about a certain kind of inheritance here. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness of faith, meekness, temperance against such. There is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. That is such an important truth. We were crucified with Christ. When you put your faith in Christ, God identified you with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Well, as we talked about in Sunday school, that's the gospel. Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. And so when you become identified, with those things, by believing the gospel through faith in Christ, you now are identified with the work that Christ did on your behalf. And you, you died with him, you were buried, and you were risen with him. Have you ever heard that song? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And, you know, when you first hear that, maybe as a new believer, you think, what, well, was I there? No, that was a couple thousand years ago. I wasn't there. But when you understand the teaching of Scripture... That when you put your faith in Christ, God retroactively identifies you and puts you back there with Christ on the cross. He retroactively identifies you and puts you in the tomb there with Christ. And He also retroactively identifies you with Christ, brings you back out of the tomb in His resurrection. You now live a resurrected life. Were you there when He crucified, when they crucified our Lord? Well, yeah, if you've trusted Christ, you were there. That's what God does for us, by his grace, through faith. So verse 25, Galatians 5.25, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And I'd mentioned this earlier. uh, You know, Paul is very precise in his wording because, well, he's writing by inspiration, of course, and God wants us to understand this stuff. Living in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit are two different things. Living in the Spirit is being saved. So when you trusted Christ, you were transferred into a new spiritual realm, the Holy Spirit taking up residence in your body. As Paul reminded the Corinthians, what? No, you're not. That we're the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? So that's being in the Spirit. But is it possible to be in the Spirit and not walk in this according to the Spirit? Yeah. A lot of Christians seem quite adept at doing that. And so he's simply saying, if you live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit too. Why not, you know? Oh, what does that look like? Verse 26, let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Walking in the Spirit is a very humbling but blessed experience. Because all the glory now goes to the Lord. You know, when you're walking in the Spirit, you're not worried about what people think of you. I don't mean in a a negative sense. I mean in a positive sense. You just aren't worried about whether they recognize your ministry, your position in Christ. That's not your concern. Your whole life is wrapped up in the Lord. So what a contrast we have Are you still in Romans 7 trying to live the Christian life but not finding how? Have you trusted Christ? Are you now in Christ by faith? Now you have a whole new life. And Christ is that life. And because of that, you are, new, uh, you are now a new man, a new woman in Christ. You are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we have our being. So the next time you face a struggle, and it probably will be before you walk out the door, it might be tomorrow, you come across a temptation or a, a thought that you shouldn't have or an activity you shouldn't be involved in, whenever this happens, just ask yourself, am I walking in the Spirit, or am I trying to live my Christian life mind over matter, mind over members, rather than trusting the Lord? Let's bow our heads, shall we? Father, what a joy it is to see your word and to understand our part in your spiritual program. Thank you that we don't have to have the kind of struggle that Paul described. We're thankful that he described it because we can identify with those attempts to simply control our actions through mental gymnastics, but that doesn't work. Thank you that you provide by your Spirit a better way, a more successful way of dealing with temptations and struggles in our life. And Lord, I pray that we'll find that victory that's already been purchased by Christ. It's already there. And by your Spirit, we will enter into it in a new way as the new creatures in Christ that we are. And Father, I do pray for that one or perhaps several who have never really considered the gospel, that they might trust Christ today by believing that he died for their sins, for he surely did, and that he was buried and rose again victorious over sin and death. May they put their trust in you today for the first time, if they never have, and then enter into that joyous life of walking in the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for this church and assembly and for the stand for the word rightly divided, uh, even when it's not popular. And we pray that you would just give them great joy in rejoicing in these truths. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.